Okay, we're all set to get started. As a reminder, if you missed last week, we will be on break after this week for roughly two months' time till early April. So the study is not going away. It's not ending. We will resume with Axe sometime around the first week in April. But again, um, if you would like a reminder or an official notification as to when Bible study will resume after tonight, if you head to the Bible study page of my website, there is a box to enter your email address, and I will email everyone with an announcement when we are going to resume. Uh, again, that's expected in April. So that's the only announcement that I have. And uh, we have one more study for now, and that's all Robert. So Robert, take it away. Okay, uh, let's start as usual with the uh, Bible reading. I'm going to click play. If you can't hear it, Matt, let me know. And Saul agreed completely with killing him. Now on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was trying to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now those who had been forced to scatter went around proclaiming the good news of the word. Philip went down to the main city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them. The crowds were paying attention with one mind to what Philip said as they heard and saw the miraculous signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, were coming out of many who were possessed, and many paralyzed and lame people were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now in that city was a man named Simon, who had been practicing magic and amazing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. All the people from the least to the greatest paid close attention to him, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid close attention to him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip... As he was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they began to be baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he stayed close to Philip constantly, and when he saw the signs and great miracles that were occurring, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. These two went down and prayed for them so they would receive the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now Simon, when he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, offered them money, saying, Give me this power too, so that everyone I place my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could acquire God's gift with money? You have no share or part in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, Repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that he may perhaps forgive you for the intent of your heart. For I see that you are bitterly envious and in bondage to sin. But Simon replied, You pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. So after Peter and John had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many Samaritan villages as they went. And that's it for today. It's about half of the chap chapter. We will cover the other half when we are back from break. But um, here we go. So I'm going to start by talking about Saul. Uh, Saul is the guy that will later become Paul, the apostle that we have mentioned a bunch of times in this study and when we studied John, of course. So this guy is is very, very, very important in the New Testament, actually one of the main characters. Now, I know that probably everyone knows that Saul becomes Paul 
but in case you don't, there you go. Spoiler alert. Um, now, because Saul is such an important figure in the New Testament, before we read on, I think that we should stop and maybe think about him just a little bit and what all we know about him. Luke introduces Paul just like he does Barnabas. Uh, at first, just as a minor character, right? There, there's some name dropping here and there, acclimating the reader to this new character, but then his prominence grows in the narrative. Now, we, you know, the, the first question we should ask is, why is Saul there at the trial of Stephen? And the more likely explanation is that Saul was part of the more radical wing of this Hellenist synagogue that went after Stephen, which will raise a number of other questions. Um, we, we read that the cloaks of the false witnesses were laid at the feet of Saul, but at the same time, we're told that Saul was a young man. And normally young men or young people in general were not honored so how is it that Saul is young yet has some kind of important role? He's being honored by, by other people. Also, what can we learn from the fact that he seems to be part of this Hellenist synagogue? Um, when we read the letters of Paul, he, he claims to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. He claims uh, to essentially have, have been raised in Israel. Yet, he, of course, his Greek is flawless, and he's part of the synagogue. So that leaves us with a handful of options, really two or a combination of, of the two, which is Saul is either uh, a Hellenist, so he's probably the son of a family that migrated from the diaspora back to Israel, like we discussed the last few weeks, or he is the child of a Hebrew family, meaning a family that's been in Israel, but he is from a wealthy family, and wealthy families would have learned Greek, you know, just as well as somebody living in the Greek world. We also know that he studied under Gamaliel, the, this very well-known teacher who spoke in, in chapter 5 at, at one of the hearings of the apostles. So, Saul, so even if we're not completely certain what his background is, we know that he is very, very... Uh, familiar with with the customs of Israel, but he also is very familiar with the Greek language and therefore with the Greek customs. He has this huge zeal for his religion, which is something we could expect, right? Because the guy is young and generally younger people tend to be more zealous and and, and be a little bit more, ag more aggressive, uh, have less self-control. Now, what do we, you know, what does the text mean when they call Saul, when it calls Saul young? That word young actually could be interpreted a zillion different ways, even in the ancient world. So it doesn't give us a whole lot of information, um, you know, depending in depending on which part of the Roman Empire we're talking about, meaning, you know, is it more the Greek part or the Latin part and so forth. Young could mean somebody between 24 and 40. It could mean somebody between 21 and 28. It could be somebody uh, below the age of 30. You know, that just kind of depended on the culture. Now, because of the scene that we that we read actually at the at the end of last chapter, 
he's probably not just a teenager. He's probably done with his studies under Gamaliel. And, and that's why he's been able to join this, you know, this council. So I think it is safe to say that he is, he is somewhere between his mid-20s and his early 30s. Okay, so that's a little bit about Saul, which, again, I think is important we talk about because he will become more and more prominent in the story. And in fact, in chapter 8, the action opens with him. He is going to start persecuting the church in, in Jerusalem and, and really even further out. As an introduction to chapter 8, there's a clear expansion in the story, in the plot of the story of the church. Now, the church is going to go out from Israel to, to other parts of the world. And this was already prophesied. We, we see this at the end of the Gospels. We see this at the beginning of Acts, that the message will go out to Samaria and then all the world. And in fact, in chapter 8, we see both. We see Samaria, and then we see a representative, quote-unquote, of all the world, the rest of the world. But we're not going to get to that part today. Yeah, so let's talk about the, the persecution and the, the ironic effect that it has. Saul starts persecuting the church very harshly, which has the effect of, of scattering the church. Now, the text says that all of all of believers are scattered. It uses the word all. And this presents an interpretive challenge. I think we all intuitively understand that all does not mean all in almost any context, right? Like if I say I ate all the food in the fridge, I don't literally mean I ate every single edible thing in the fridge. Like this is one of those words that in any language has some kind of limitation that is dictated by context. For the longest time, scholars thought that it was really the, the Hellenists in Israel that they were the ones to be scattered. But that theory really is based on the idea that Hellenists and Hebrews had very strong theological disagreements regarding the temple, which is really an incorrect belief. And now it's kind of outdated. More and more people are dropping that belief. And the text does not have a clear-cut limiting principle, like it was this portion of the church that was scattered. It just says all, which implies a large number of believers, um, but not, you know, not being divided by any one particular line. Now, we could speculate speculate that more Hellenists than non-Hellenists scattered just because they would have had more connections in the outside world. They spoke the language and so forth. So sure, there may be some truth to it just from a practical standpoint, but that's not really what Luke is saying. Now, Luke also says that all but the apostles, right? The apostles remain. And sometimes I think we might misinterpret what Luke is saying there. Now, certainly we could theorize that, that Saul did not persecute the apostles because Gamaliel had protected the apostles. So Saul, being the disciple of his, maybe just decided to go easy on them. Um, or maybe Saul just respected the apostles because they were these kind of amazing, miracle-working men. But neither proposal seems likely because in a case of persecution, like we're reading here, the leaders would be the first to be persecuted. 
So the idea that there was persecution, but the leaders were spared, it's just so unlikely. It doesn't really make sense. What is probably happening here is that the apostles were quite brave and remained, but they had to go underground. And that's probably what's happening here. Now, when I say the apostles are brave, I don't really want to attack the, the people who were scattered because they also not only you know endured persecution that forced them to leave their homes, but they probably lost a whole lot of stuff through this process. Probably their property would have been deemed legally abandoned, so they would have lost whatever they they um, you know left behind. And if if it wasn't just abandoned, their property may have been legally confiscated. Confiscation was a common you know sentence, a common punishment to add on to other criminal sentences. So they probably lost a whole lot later. In the New Testament, we read about the church in Jerusalem being quite poor, and these events probably had a lot to do with it. Now, another detail that I think is important to mention is the fact that Saul is going from house to house. This is, this is a like a level up in in the intensity of persecution. It's one thing to arrest a man in public. It is an entirely different thing to go to his home and arrest him. The home is the domestic sphere, which involves women. And some of the women are arrested as well. That's what the text tells us, which is quite brutal. Now, in the ancient world, much like today, women were arrested significantly less often than men. But sometimes exceptions were made. In fact, we know of exceptions in which wives were were killed or executed due to the husband's rebellion. So it what's going on here, although you know the text only spends like two sentences talking about it, is quite severe. A quick aside from the action, we read that Stephen was was mourned and buried. The fact that Stephen was buried is not surprising at all. The fate of being left unburied was was considered so awful by both Jews and Gentiles that it was hardly ever imposed on anyone. Now, I say hardly ever because one of the more prominent exceptions would be people who were cr crucified by the Romans. The Romans would often deny burial and they would allow the people who were crucified to be eaten by wild animals, which again was the worst fate imaginable. But short of that, it was very unlikely. And it was actually against the law of the Jews, if you go back to Deuteronomy. Now, the morning is actually surprising because we have later texts that, that tell us that oftentimes mourning was disallowed if a person had died due to a criminal sentence. This is further evidence that probably what we what we read last week is the story of a trial that then devolved into a lynching because if Stephen had died formally by order of this this trial of this tribunal, then probably mourning would not have been allowed. But okay, that's a quick aside in case you're trying to kind of picture the situation, what all is going on. But one of the key takeaways from this idea of persecution is that Saul's persecution of the church 
led to Philip's ministry in Samaria and elsewhere, and actually to the ministry of untold other believers who were scattered. So it had this very positive effect in the spreading of the faith, of, of the message of the good news. So Saul actually was a vessel of God before he was ever Paul, except that as Saul, he was a vessel of God, but yet one who merited judgment. We see this in the Old Testament. God uses both the Assyrians and the Babylonians as his instruments to accomplish good things, like judge certain people, while at the same time saying Assyria and Babylon are not innocent, and one day they will also be judged. So God will use both the good and the wicked. Um, another thing that I think is important to highlight is that this this turn of events had to be really surprising even to the apostles. Because if you read the Old Testament, probably the impression you would get is that the way that the Gentiles would receive the gospel is that they would be attracted to the glory of Israel after it accepted its Messiah. But instead, the message goes out to the Gentiles because Israel rejects its Messiah. So yet again, God is acting in a surprising way. Well, we are told that Philip goes to a Samaritan town. This is another quick aside, but but it, it's kind of this wrinkle in the text in the sense that, uh, you know, our translation says he went to the main city in Samaria. Now, the word main is not actually in the text that's being added by our translators for the sake of clarity. Really, the phrase says, the city of Samaria. And the definite article is a little bit questionable, so it may say a city in Samaria, or a city of Samaria, is what I should say. Well, so that makes it, that leaves it a little bit unclear as to which city we're talking about. It could be the city, and I don't know that I'm pronouncing this correctly. Normally I look up pronunciation ahead of time, but is it the city of Sebast or Sebasti? I don't know. I apologize. But um, that is one possibility. That was the main city in Samaria, but that was a Gentile city. And so it, it does not jive with the story that Philip is going to a Gentile city when the whole point is he's going to Samaria. Besides, whenever Luke uses the word Samaria, he always means Samaritans, like quote-unquote true Samaritans, not, not a Gentile area. So... Uh, many people would suggest that Philip went to some other city in Samaria and not, not the one large Gentile city. Again, that's a detail, just in case if you're interested in that and, and you can read a little bit more about it in the blog if, if you want to. Okay, now, before we move... Oh, I saw, by the way, that uh, Reverend Rogers posted about this on the on the chat, if anybody's watching it. The NET actually takes the position that it is Sebasti, but I think that their, that their position is a little bit outdated. I think if you read um, other scholars, they would probably disagree with that. But I'm glad he posted that because otherwise, I don't know, people might, um, might be confused why I'm disagreeing with the notes in the NET. Good deal. So... Before we move on, we have to discuss the Samaritans, and I know that we have discussed them in the past, so I'm going to try to make it as brief as possible. But if we don't understand who the Samaritans are, 
the weight of this chapter will just be lost on us. Because really what happens here is, is tremendously important. Well, the the story, the story of the Samaritans goes back to the Old Testament. The kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, well, both kingdoms were uh, disloyal to God and did all sorts of wicked things, but the northern kingdom was even worse. And I know that I'm summarizing. You guys are welcome to read a, <laughs> a longer version. But the, the northern kingdom then was destroyed by the Assyrians. That's how God judged them. And now, a, a lot of the people were taken away, but some people remained. By people, I mean Jews. Some people, some Jews remained in the northern kingdom. But then they commingled, they intermarried with Assyrians and other people that came into that territory. And so what you end up in Samaria is, now I'm going to use this word that could offend somebody. Uh, I'm just trying to get a point across, but they're like half-breeds, okay? And I know that today, that, that, that just that concept would be quite offensive, but I do think it's, it's appropriate in, in this context. Well, so the people in Samaria are not Gentiles, and Jews did not refer to them as Gentile, as non-Jews, but they were also not Jews or not good Jews. They were somewhere in between. Josephus, for example, the Jewish historian, calls them Jewish apostates. Okay? Now, I hope you're getting the sense of the tension between these two groups. Now, not only do you have this racial connection, yet distinction, but you have the same religiously. The Samaritans, they, they accepted the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Some of their texts were slightly different than the Jewish texts, but for purposes of tonight, we can say effectively they had the, the same first five books. But the Samaritans, they thought of a different mountain as being the holiest mountain. It was not in Jerusalem. It was Mount Gerizim. And the temple there was destroyed in 128 BC. Now, the fact that the Samaritans did not recognize Jerusalem as the holiest of sites was incredibly offensive to them. And it, it was particularly offensive to them because Samaritans were not Gentiles. You see, some Jews would extend some grace to Gentiles and would say, fine, Gentiles couldn't kind of do their own thing. But that that same leeway would not be extended to Samaritans since they were sort of kind of Jewish. Then the tensions between the two groups particularly escalated in the first century BC, uh, whenever the Jews returned from Babylonian exile. The At least as the story goes, this is contested the Samaritans convinced the Romans to stop the Jews from rebuilding their temple. Then, uh, you know, at the end of the first century BC, the, again, as the story goes, the Samaritans defiled the temple in Jerusalem with human bones. And after that, they were banned from attending Passover. Okay, these two groups hate each other, right? And they really did. Um, Jews did not trust Samaritans, would not take their testimony. Um, it, it, it was a very, very 
uh, tricky situation. Well, notice then that when Philip goes to Samaria to share the gospel with them, to tell them about the kingdom and Christ, that is what the text tells us, we see no discussion about Philip, you know, arguing with them about which temple is the true temple and which scriptures are the true scriptures. There, there is none of that. Philip just shares with them the kingdom and Christ and then has the audacity to baptize them, to, which, which conveys the idea that they're fully accepted into the faith. Uh, again, I know that as modern readers, we're like, okay, yeah, that's kind of neat. This this is beyond shocking, if, you know, if you really understand all of that background. This is very, very powerful. Another thing that raises some questions, and it's kind of shocking, not in a bad way, is that how did the Samaritans interpret the message of Christ? Samaritans also expected... Um, you know, a sort of a sort of Christ figure. I say sort of, because their concept was different from the Jewish concept. It wasn't the Davidic Messiah. It was the Teheb, which means the restorer. It was going to be more of a Moses figure who would restore the divine, the time of divine favor, which actually had ended after Moses, according to them. And again, we don't see. Philip, um, you know, arguing about this Christ figure, I, I think it's plausible to guess that Philip may have repurposed their expectations for a Christ-like figure. Now, I'm not saying that truth is relative or something like that, and Philip just kind of let them believe whatever it is that they want to believe, but it seems like, and I know that this is an argument from silence, so I'm not trying to take it any further than than I should, but it, it really does seem like Philip works with whatever is already there, okay? And if that is the case, then this does have some missiological implications. Like, whenever we talk to people who are non-believers, can we try to use, to repurpose what they already believe as long as it does not compromise the gospel, of course. Again, I'm not trying to argue for some kind of, uh, you know, relativism or or whatever, but it is to kind of meet people where they're at. Just a thought, you know, take with that what you will. Philip engages in miracles and exorcisms. We have discussed miracles a zillion times, so I'm going to leave that there. But there is a, an emphasis in exorcisms. Now, we have also discussed exorcisms in the past. This is not new. Um, but it is interesting that they, they are so prominent in the narrative. The fact that loud shouts were heard is consistent with the experience of Jesus. If you go back and read exorcisms done by Jesus, one example would be in Luke 8. We also see this loud shouting. Now, something that I thought I would mention, because I know this stuff, you know, might weird us out, is is so foreign to our experience. But I feel like I should add that the early church talked about people coming to Christ after an exorcism. Um, Irenaeus would be an example. He writes about this. And in modern times, we have quite a few narratives about this. If we go back, you know, 300 years, 
somebody who was well known for this would be John Wesley. He's one of the co-founders of the Methodist movement. And today, if if you talk to a Pentecostal or any kind of more charismatic church, they will uh, probably have stories about exorcisms and how people then were you know were able to come to Christ through that. Now, I, I'm not saying that all of these reports are true. But I think it's also very hard to dismiss all of these reports as false. I'll leave that there. I mean, you you know, you can believe whatever you would like about that, but but I, I really do think there's something to it. Well, another major theme in what we just read is, is the Holy Spirit, and, and particularly when the Holy Spirit is received. And I'm going to get, by the way, to the sorcerer at the end of this. To me, he's actually the least interesting part of this story. It's so much more important that the Samaritans receive the gospel. Like that is infinitely more important than Simon the sorcerer. But I will get to that in just a minute. Yeah. But notice that the Samaritans accept the word. That's exactly what we read in our translation. They are baptized. Uh, earlier, they, they are described as being joyful yet they do not receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you read the letters of Paul, and quite frankly, any other author in the New Testament, conversion and the Holy Spirit are always simultaneous. But in this case, or they, they're discussed as being simul, sim, simultaneous. Well, in this case, they are not, right? What we read is that the apostles go to Samaria later, lay hands on the people, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Well, this has created a lot of controversy over the years. And I'm not even going to try to settle the controversy, but I do feel like I can maybe provide some useful parameters. And then we can kind of play within those. So let's, you know, what can we say for sure? Of course, we can say for sure that the Holy Spirit is tremendously important. Receiving the Holy Spirit completes the mission that, you know, the, the Samaritans certainly would have been incomplete without receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, we, um, let me see. Sorry, I lost my place there for one second. Okay. So, what other things should we think about? Should we say that the Samaritan conversion was incomplete until they received the Holy Spirit? And th there are some people who take that line of thought, but honestly, I find it to be untenable to say that. Why? Because it would require you to hold that a person can believe the message and be baptized in, in full belief, joyfully doing so, yet somehow they're not a genuine believer because apostolic hands have not been laid on them. I don't know of any, not a single den Christian denomination that would require the laying of hands for somebody to convert. Now, some may require baptism, but that's a whole other discussion. So I don't think that that line of thought is particularly good. Also, there's no hint in the text that the Samaritans are incompletely converted uh, in some kind of way or defectively converted in some kind of way. The apostles do not rebaptize them, but accept them as they are. Um, and so, again, I, I don't think that the text really lends itself 
to that. Now, here's a thought that I think maybe we ought to consider is do, you know, must the Holy Spirit behave the same way all the time? Must spiritual realities behave according to unbendable norms? Perhaps, perhaps you want to say, yep, this is the rule and it applies the same way every time, all the time. Okay, fair enough. But we are dealing with people, both on the human side and on the side of God, right? God is a person. We're not just behaving according to rules unless, I suppose, God wants to do it like that. Let me give you a couple of examples and then I'll move on to the next topic. Today, whenever somebody lies to the church, they don't drop dead like Ananias and Sapphira. So notice there's not just one rule that applies there all the time. Or, for example, modern preachers are not walking around healing people with, para with uh, who are lame or have paralysis or whatever. So again, there's not this one rule for the leaders of the faith. You know, is it is it impossible to believe that perhaps in this instance there was a good reason to delay the Holy Spirit? What could that reason be? Well, the apostles in the church in Jerusalem, they kind of had to see it with their own eyes that Samaritans were receiving the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they may never have believed it. Otherwise, they may have always thought of Samaritans as lesser believers or fake believers, something like that, right? It was very important that it was clear to everyone that the Samaritans had received the Spirit. They were true believers. Now, um, I, you know, if, if, I guess let me close with this on what the options are. I, and I'm not I'm not going to take a side on this either way. Um, some denominations today would believe that, that uh, when people are converted, they receive the Holy Spirit and that's that. There are some denominations today that would emphasize a second experience with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that experience would be marked by speaking in tongues. Um, and, and it's kind of an empowering experience and, and normally they would go to this text. Whether that's the case or not, again, that, that's for y'all to decide. What I would say to close this topic is that all of this discussion about timing is really obscuring the main point, which is that the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. The significance of that is huge. Okay. Now, to the last main theme of the text that we read, that is Simon the Sorcerer. The, the story of Simon the Sorcerer is, is wild. And actually, at least one of the church fathers claimed to know the guy and, and gives us a little bit more, gives us a few more details of the story. And I mentioned some of it in the blog, but at any rate, whenever Philip goes to Samaria, he runs into Simon the Sorcerer. And Simon and Philip are very similar, strikingly similar, yet different in, in a key way, right? This has all the vibes of like a, like a comic book where the, the hero and the villain are almost the same person, but they disagree on maybe like their core motivation. Um, so they both are, are uh, works one, they, they, sorry, they both work wonders. They both draw crowds and, you know, they both are great power or perform great powers. And I'll discuss that more in just a second. They both 
amaze people. Okay. So they're similar in that regard. Now, what is the key difference between the two? What makes one a saint and one a villain, figuratively speaking, although that's not far off the mark? Simon is in it for his own benefit, right? To to gain status himself and in all likelihood to gain to gain money himself. Philip, on the other hand, is acting only in the name of Jesus, on behalf of God and not for his own benefit. This, this kind of sets the whole stage for the controversy that's going to happen. Now, encounters like this, what are called power encounters, they exist in the Old Testament as well. They're probably the most prominent one would be in Exodus, whenever Pharaoh's sorcerers are copying the miracles done by Moses in Aaron. And then probably the second most prominent power encounter would be in 1 Kings when Elijah challenges a bunch of false prophets and it's like, you know, what, both, you know, I'll pray to my God, you pray to your God, and whoever is able to set fire to this pile of wood first, you know, will demonstrate that his God is the true God. And I give citations and quote some of it in the blog if you're interested, just for the sake of time, I won't read it. Now, um, honestly, these power encounters are not unusual today if you talk to missionaries. It, these stories are fairly common where a missionary will have a sort of contest with the local sorcerer, whatever term they would use. Um, one thing that we, I think we need to stop and discuss briefly is how is magic different from miracles? And actually, that's a very difficult question to answer. And yet, at the same time, you know it when you see it. Now, I'm not going to leave it at that. I will spell out some um, some criteria that we can use. But some of the differences would be that magic generally manipulates spirits or forces um, for you know, for self-benefit. Um, miracles, on the other hand, are not manipulative. They're not manipulating God. God is the, the one just doing it out of his own free will. And also, they're generally altruistic. They're not for personal benefit. Now, um, you could say that miracles are not altruistic. Like, what's the difference between a magician healing a paralyzed person and, say, Philip healing a paralyzed person? Um, in that sense, they're both for the personal advantage of the one being healed. But we're really talking about the personal advantage of the one doing the healing. Philip is not getting anything out of it. Key evidence, if you're trying to tell magic apart from miracles, is whether the guy doing it is getting paid. In the ancient times, sorcerers would make good money off of charging for, um, you know, for their work, for the, what they were doing. Now, I, another thing that I think is important to point out is that Ancient people often talked about sorcerers, particularly certain sorcerers, as being charlatans, as being fake, as being frauds. We have this view today that ancient people just believed any good old superstition, you know, anyone claimed to be a sorcerer and ancients were like, oh yeah, he has superpowers. That is not at all the case, okay? That is not at all the case. Um, so certainly... Uh, there was a stigma against sorcerers because oftentimes they were fraudulent and, again, they were in it for their own profit. 
Now, Simon sees what's happening, the kind of stuff that Philip is doing. He is amazed and he believes. That is what we are told. But just a few verses down, there is a falling out. And by the way, I see the time. I will make this very, very quick and I'll turn it over. But um, I think to understand the conflict that happens between Simon and the apostles, we really need to understand what Simon was claiming about himself. He claims to be great. Now, this is an adjective um, in, the, in the text. I mean, and it does not necessarily imply a divine title, but it is consistent with it. And then we see what the people call him. And they call him the power of God that is called great, or what could also be translated, the great power of God, which certainly seems to, to imply that they're calling him divine in some way. Now, um, you may say, well, that doesn't make sense to me because Samaritans were monotheistic, which is true. Samaritans were generally monotheistic and they were quite religious. But remember that by this time they had been heavily Hellenized meaning they had been made more Greek, and part of becoming more Greek was a syncretistic religion, was the mixing of religions. So it's not at all unlikely that they that Samaritans would have seen Simon as divine or quasi-divine. Okay, So now you can see how Simon would be truly, truly offensive to the apostles. And when the apostles get there, Simon offers to buy the ability to convey the Holy Spirit. And that flies all over Peter, and there is a brutal rebuke. And essentially boils down to this. Peter says, look, if you think that the Holy Spirit is the kind of thing that you can buy, then you don't get it. You don't really believe, because that is just so off the mark. And then Peter even goes into, into Simon's motivations. He said, you're just jealous, right? The idea is that, that if Simon could get this kind of power, imagine the money he could make if he had the keys to the kingdom in a very literal sense. And so uh, Simon is rebuked and he says to Peter, please pray for me. Uh, this was... This is quite typical. We see this in the Old Testament as well. Somebody who has committed uh, a heinous offense asking a godly man, please pray for me, because in their minds, God would listen to the prayers of a holy man. Now, the, the this whole scene raises a question because we're told that Simon believed first, but then there's this falling out. So did Simon really believe? Was he really a convert? And... You can land on either side of this. You could say that he really was a believer and then he fell from grace, so he became an apostate. Or you could say that, no, he never really truly believed. Um, so he wasn't really an apostate. He was just never a believer. You can make arguments for both sides. So I'll leave it there. Um, but again, the main point of this is not so much the, the witchcraft that is going on, but it is the idea of, you know, are we really believing God? Not just in God, but God. Do we believe what he says? Do we believe his promises? If we did, we would never think that salvation is the kind of thing that can be bought. And with that, I will turn it over uh, to Matt. Thanks, Robert. As always, guys, if you'd like to participate in the discussion, just write the word question in the chat, 
and I'll be happy to bring you in in the order in which we received those requests. As far as my own curiosity, uh, tell me more about exorcisms because you said you think there's something to it. And I only know about exorcisms through the movie, The Exorcism, which I happened to watch last week. So first of all, in the biblical or scriptural sense, what is the definition of exorcism? Just so I understand the term specifically. So it would be the the removal of an unclean spirit or demon from a person. Now, the really the, the trickier definition is what does it mean for a person to be possessed by an unclean spirit or demon? Because it's not always the same. Like sometimes a person is afflicted by something. Um, that's what the unclean spirit is doing. Um, sometimes, rarely, that person is fully controlled by the unclean spirit. That would be like the most extreme form of a possession. Um, but in the text, you will find both. Somebody who's being stricken by a unclean spirit and some who are, who are controlled by. And the exorcism would be the removal of that spirit or demon. You might want to make a distinction between those two terms. I think many people would see unclean spirit and demon as being synonyms. But that's up to you is Philip the originator of this sort of thing or were they done prior to him? No, they were done prior. Jesus does several. Jesus himself did it. That was my next question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he does several. I, I don't have a count, but I, I want to say there's five or six. That maybe. didn't, um, there's, there's not an account of that in John. Is there, did I miss it or? Oh my goodness. Uh, it could be that John does not narrate. No, but I think there's at least one. I cannot recall. Sometimes, I might have just missed it. but yeah. <laughs> And sometimes the gospels just run together in my head and I can't recall what's in which one. Um, so maybe somebody in the, you know, in the chat can say, but yeah. And maybe we'll come back to it. And I want to make sure everyone gets their chance too. But last question on it. What strategically, what did that usually look like? Is it like it is portrayed in the Hollywood sense where it's like, I got to get the holy water and splash you with that. And then sort of uh, cast the demon out with certain sayings or something? Or was, is there, what did the practice look like? So, in it, again, I, I'm going to show a little bit of my ignorance here. I have, of course, read the Gospels. I've read the whole Bible. But as far as I can recall, um, generally, it was just by command in the name of God or particularly okay. in the name of the Lord Jesus, depart. But there is one scene so to speak which the apostles go to jesus and say hey some of these unclean spirits would not leave and jesus says these will only leave by prayer uh, and if somebody could give me the citation that would be great or i'll look it up while somebody asks a question but but no it it does not involve these other like rituals and things and, and almost like holy weapons it involves the authority of christ and prayer and fasting. Okay. Denby, you're good to go if you're ready. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so um, first thing first about uh, Saul. I mean, um, I think that that the kind of the either or, either Greek or, you know, or, or, or you know, either, or, I don't think that makes much sense. And <clears throat> particularly, um, we could see that he could have um, spent the age, you know, say from birth till the age of 10 or so, 
in Tarsus. And then at whatever age they send, you know, their child to the to the scholar, you know, then he goes off to the scholar. And, you know, so um he uh you know he could you know Saul could have could think of himself as you know coming to coming of age in Jerusalem, for example. Um, but very clearly he 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 does have a background of being from a Greek area. Tarsus was a Greek city, um, you know, which is now Turkey, but at the time it was part of the, it was the left, part of the leftovers of Alexander's empire. And um, another thing is, um, uh, Paula, Paulus is, uh, it's, it's generally not used as, as a, in the, as a surname in the way that we think of it. Uh it was usually used to distinguish between two people with the same name from the same family. Uh, so um, there's lots of people who called Magnus the Great, and then there'd be another one who'd called Paulus the Lesser. You know, just like there's you know the the elder and the younger, you know, for the same name. Like, you know, there's there are lots of cases of like like Pliny the the Romans. The, the Greek, you know, the Roman historian, you know, there was an elder and a, and a younger, you know, and um, yeah, Paulus means means yeah, it does mean small in 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 in, in Latin, but it generally in Paulus means the lesser. That's that's where it comes from, and so, um, and the the other point I want to make about Paul is is uh, Saul rather is at this point, if you were to ask any of the apostles. Hey, do you think this is a a guy that we should approach and ask him if he what might might like to come and and talk to us or you know maybe visit a few of our con you know of our of our groups? I think you, we all know what the answer would be right now. So are you kidding? You know he's our worst enemy, and so we never know who will be become part of the church who will be become a Christian. It's just like, you know, for for more than a thousand years there was the there was a, a very thick anti-Semitism. Kind of the, the thought was, well, the Jews will never, never none of the Jews will ever believe. But, you know, nowadays there are lots of uh, people who were born and raised Jewish who become Christian. Um Michael Brown is a might some might some of you might well know of him, a famous uh, theologian and and you know a pre preacher. And um, there's um, a famous scientist named James Tour, um, you know Andrew Clay Clavin, you know. And so even now, thousands of years after the split between the synagogue and the church, there are people who. Uh, turn away from, you know, what they were raised with. Uh, Andrew Clavin, you might know, his his father told him that if he ever became a Christian, he would disown him. It's because he caught him reading the Gospels, when he, uh, reading one of the Gospels when he was a teenager. And it's just, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, at first it would have seemed like uh, like Simon the Simon the the sorcerer was going to become a believer. Now I think that the 
there the the term believe would be what we'll the i, I got to make sure i leave enough time for the other oh, yeah, clauses. Sure, so we'll have to make our no, last just, point just, quickly here this, but yeah this is like yeah just that, that that he believed they really could do these things you know it doesn't mean that he believed like what you know like theologically what they believe but you know just like they really can do these things that i can't do and i think that's another thing about miracles it's that often the magnitude is is the real indicator like the 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 uh egyptian priest could not do most of the miracles that that moses could do with god through god anyway I think all right a, yeah thanks dan uh, robert did you have thoughts on that uh, no, thank you for the historical notes that, that you made at first. Um, and um, no, for now, I'll leave it there. Let's see what else other people have to say. But thank you, Demi. Uh, on the topic, I, hope I didn't take up too much time. No, that's all right. Thanks, thanks for your uh, commentary, and of course, thanks for your participation throughout the uh, the study. And I hope to see you back in a couple months' time. Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan did add in the chat here some um, citation on examples of Jesus's exorcisms in Matthew and Luke and in Mark. So I'll have a look at those. And thanks, Ryan, for the uh, references. Also have a request to speak from Rev Rogers. Rev Rogers, go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I just put a thing in the chat. I'd like to invite any of you, if you're free on Wednesday nights, I do stream my Sunday, my Wednesday night Bible study. So I invite you to look at that, put the YouTube channel Between Two Rivers, Arkansas. Um, also, if y'all would like to, for me to kind of arrange a Friday night Bible study, I'd be glad to try to what come up. What time is this Wednesday night stream? It, no, I'm just kidding. it uh, is always before <laughs> you. Oh, Even thank you. It, it is at, it's at <laughs> six o'clock. And so yeah. it does not interfere with your stuff. Oh, well, thank fact, you. I'm thank always you. glad uh, that I can finish up even when we had a yeah. later time. You know, that and might be, you, you, uh, seriously speaking, you make an important point there. That is to say, if, if you or others would like to continue in your own group study during the break, I'd be happy to facilitate that. Uh, Rev Rogers, if you want to send me an email, maybe I can have, I suppose if you're interested in participating in that sort of thing, send me an email, Rev Rogers, you send me an email and I'll connect people who are looking to do that. Does that sound okay. good? Yeah, that sounds good. Um, on time, I'll be out February 4th through the 12th. I'm going to England. And so I wouldn't be able to do it that week, but mm -hmm. um, all the other weeks. Um, what I wanted to say is most of the verbals that are used with regards to demon possession, it doesn't use the phrasing possessed by a demon. It usually just uses this, the singular type of concept, demonized. So if a person is demonized, you then could consider there might be levels of demonization, you know, kind of a lower level and then a higher level, you know, just severely oppressed by a demon. In other words, having terrible, terrible thoughts and temptations and things like that. But it also could become highly demonized in the sense of, of even controlling bodily movements and, and uh, inarticulate speech and, you know, casting into the fire, um, things like that. And so the, the verbiage of, of being possessed by a demon, um, that's not the phrasing. It is just a person is demonized and thus 
there would be levels of what we might call possession. In fact, I think we ought to kind of get away from the the, the language of possession uh, and just say demonized and then try to suss out what level of demonization it's at in order to kind of understand. Because, you know, I can just have lots of temptations um, and trouble, anxiety and worry and fear, whereas somebody could just really be whacked out, even to the point of, I, I think sometimes there's a crossover between mental illness and demonization. Not all mental illness is demonization, but some of it, I think, has a cross, an overlap of the two. And and so that has to be considered by both ministers and psychiatrists in understanding that sort of an issue. Thanks, Rev. Rogers. Uh, Robert, do you have thoughts on that? No, thank you, uh, Reverend Rogers, for saying all that. Um, because yeah, that it's always good to go back to the word in the Greek. Um, and yeah, no, I I thought that was great. I might add that, like I said, I know that talking about um, you know demonizations or or what have you, um, it it sounds so weird, and people immediately think that we're into like occult stuff. But particularly if you talk to missionaries. They have plenty of tales about this. And now you can say that most of them, I guess you could say all of them are lying. But when so many of them have such similar stories, I'm just saying it's very hard to say that there's nothing there. Just a thought. Chris, you're good to go if you're ready. Yeah, thank you guys as always. Um, <clears throat> my, my question, it's really a comment, is pretty brief. Uh, since this is the last uh, week for a while until April, um, just encourage everyone to just keep, even though we're on break, you can keep reading it. And uh, Acts is a book that I can read over and over. I've I uh, found some good <clears throat> some good narrations. I don't have uh, the one Robert has, but there's some good narrations depending on which translation you like on YouTube, and you can just um, put them in a playlist and have them play. You can listen to the book. I'd say probably what, two hours, you go through the whole book. But it's a good book to just just read over and over. And, and there's something also about, <clears throat> and I, I love a deep dive. I love the, these these studies and the meat and the, uh, the um, back and forth and everything. But there's also something to be said for just reading something through. And so you kind of don't break the, the narrative, if you will. Yeah. But that's yeah. it. Just yeah, encourage that, and Thank you for uh, your participation and, of course, for the thoughts. Uh, appreciate it, Chris. And uh, Robert, do you have anything to add to that? I, I fully agree with what he just said. One time I did that whole thing, like read the Bible in 90 days. So you're reading long chunks of the Bible every day. And it really changes how you understand it because you actually get the whole stories instead of like, stopping and dwelling on one paragraph and then the next week you do another paragraph just reading it in in large chunks is so helpful so i fully agree with his comment yeah, how much just, how much time a day did you have to devote to, to that to get through it in 90 days oh i bet it doesn't take but 45 minutes a day oh, okay something. i thought it was gonna be more than that no and if you did it in audiobook and you know you put it at one half speed or whatever i I bet it doesn't take even that long. For me, the thing I'd worry about with doing something like that is 
there have been so many examples throughout this study where something I read something with a modern from a modern layman perspective and the words I think whatever word means X and you're telling me it actually means Y. They're not necessarily opposites, but they're just different in the way that I would conceptualize it. So I'm not saying I couldn't conceivably consume it on my own. I just worry that with no knowledge, without a guide like I have here, that I would miss a lot of the intended meaning. Or do you you think that's the case or do you think I'd be fine on my own? No, I mean, I think that in a sense that is the case, but in a different sense, it's still a good exercise, you know, like I think it's good to do both, to just read it like that in long chunks so you really get the vibe of the story. And then it's good to go back and be like, that part of the story didn't make any sense to me. Maybe, you know, maybe I should study it. And and that happens to me to this day, by the way. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, I just read any passage of scripture and instantly understand it. Um, well, also, anytime you read scripture, it depends upon where you are. It will be different every time you read it. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think I got everybody's request to speak. We're right at the top of the hour, but I, you know, I have a couple of minutes if Robert does. So if anybody else wants to uh, have a word, go for it before we uh, sign off for a couple months time. Everybody had their, their piece. All right. Uh, Robert, any other thoughts you want to offer before we take a break? Um, I would just say, just like I did last time when we took a break, if anybody is kind of thinking what to do next, go to church, go to church, go to church. That really is my suggestion. If you are on the fence about this, this is going to sound super hippie trippy, but go experience God. Go experience the people of God. The church is supposed to be the body of Christ. And so go to church and, and see it for yourself, experience it for yourself. Yeah, I know the risk of saying that because you might walk into like a super woke church. And I'm sorry to say it like that, but it's true. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I hope that you will walk into a solid church. I don't even care what denomination you're going to. Um, but th this Bible study will never be able to convey that. Like that you can only get in community with people. So that's that's my encouragement. And I would like to briefly apologize for the break that we are having. Like we said last time, it just, sometimes I have all these commitments and it makes it impossible for me to continue the, the study all the time uh, because it does take a significant portion of my week to be able to prepare for something like this. Otherwise you'd be getting a really low quality study, which I just would not do. So I apologize. I do intend the best, but sometimes. No, we all thank you for that. And I know I've said it in the past, but everybody I hope understands that Robert does this solely because of his devotion to the scripture. That's it. Robert doesn't work for me. Robert is not, uh, you know, he's, he has no obligation to me or anybody else here. He just has a love for the scripture. And that's why I appreciate all the effort that he puts into it. And I, I trust I speak on behalf of everybody here when, when I say thank you for that. We really appreciate it. I did see uh, Denby had one more request to speak. So Denby, if you've got a quick thought, go ahead. Oh yeah, it's just uh, pretty simple. If you're if you are interested in um, in kind of uh, some help with with figuring out, there's a there's a guy you can find on YouTube who's uh, he has lots of like 20, 30 minute, 10, 20, 30 minute videos. There's a guy named Jay Warner Wallace. 
Okay. Um, and he uh, he does really good videos. I, th I think they would appeal to you. Mm. He's a he's a cold case homicide detective, mm. and that's sort of the approach that he, he uses in in explaining things. So you can you, you might be you know, can listen to some you know like acts or whatever, and then you can find one of his videos and you know he's he he's really good at, at explaining in a very um matter of fact point by point uh way all right i will uh i'll have to take a look at it and uh are you able to just send Rob me that in an email and that. i can yeah i can oh yeah sure i can sure. find it that way because i sometimes yeah. it's hard to find things on my own you know but uh yeah, no problem all right. Thanks, Danby. And uh, with that, that will do it on this portion of the Axe study. Of course, we're coming back in April. Uh, Denby did raise an important point in the chat that I want to make sure everyone's aware of as far as the email uh, list that I have going with which I will send uh, notifications later when the study resumes in April. If you're already on the list, you don't need to sign up again. It's just if you weren't on the list prior add your name to the list. You'll get an email when we start up again in April. Other than that, of, uh, of course, you can get in touch with me or get in touch with Robert anytime. The way to do that, uh, you can find that information on the Bible study page of my website uh, or just you know use my general email that you can find on my website. I'd be happy to help you out. I appreciate everybody uh, participating in the study or if you're just listening later after the fact. Thank you for your passive participation as well. And we will be back again sometime in, in early April. So all the best in the uh, couple months in the meantime. And uh, have a good night, everybody.